0: Hey folks, before we jump into this episode, I have a quick announcement to make. Uh, Since late last year, I've been putting together a book featuring interviews with close to 30 people that I featured on the podcast that is weaved together with commentary from yours truly. Uh, The book will be published through Gods and Radicals Press, and we're finally at the stage in putting this book together to announce that it is ready for pre-sale with an official release date set for May 15th. The title of this book is We Live in the Orbit of Beings Greater Than Us. If you look down in the description of this episode, you'll see a link to the website where you can pre-order the book before its release. You can go to abeautifulresistance.org as well and just look at the top of the page in the books tab. Click on that and you will see it there as well. The individuals featured will be Dar Jamel, Nicholas Humphrey, Francisco Sanchez-Bio, Dr. William Rees, Holly Truller, Ian McGilchrist, Reed Wildermuth, Sylvia Federici, Dr. Gerald Horn, Tad Hargrave, Shane Burley, Sinesha Milosevic, Leah Babayan, Desiree Lynn of Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, Peter Gelderloos, Gord Hill, Habat of the Make Rojava Green Again campaign from the Internationalist Commune of Rojava, Ramon Ilani, Michael Sleva, Rob Simetz, John H. Richardson, Corey Morningstar, Jasper Burns, Paul Beckwith, Stephen Jenkinson, Dr. Carla Tate of the Unistotan Camp of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation, Joe Brewer, John Halstead, and Bio Akamalafe. Please go check out the link in the description. Go to www.beautifulresistance.org, click on the book tab to find We Live in the Orbit of Beings Greater Than Us, set for release on May 15th. Thank you so much. Episode I speak with John Pfeffer. John is the director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute of Policy Studies, and in this interview, we discuss his article that was published at Foreign Policy and Focus and was picked up by Counterpunch. Will the coronavirus kill globalization? I'm recording this introduction on March 14th. I'm looking to release this interview within a week from now. I recorded this interview with John yesterday on March 13th. I'm Stating the dates, because I think this coronavirus outbreak, this pandemic that's been labeled COVID-19, this situation is really fluid. I mean, just a week ago, things have changed so dramatically, uh, it seems like, as far as how people are dealing with this pandemic. So I'm going to try to get this interview out as soon as I can. But as I state leading into this interview with John, there are plenty of resources out right now that show what to do to deal with this from a health and medical perspective. Flattening the curve, as it's been called, right? Trying to mitigate the spread of this virus as much as possible and uh, deal with it as it emerges in communities in a more effective way. So I think that that's out there. I'm going to put some resources down in the description so people can check out if there's any curiosity or anybody needs to look into that. I'll put some resources for how to deal with that in the description. Obviously, there are certain things that we can do from that perspective to help mitigate the spread of this virus, and that's incredibly important right now. You know, I'm thinking about this. I'm 31 years old. My immune system is fairly good, I would say. I don't get sick very often, and I tend to deal with sicknesses fairly well. So I imagine that uh, I, if I were to get the virus... I probably would be either asymptomatic or show very mild symptoms and it probably wouldn't kill me. I'm just going to guess. Who knows, right? But that's really not the concern here. The concern is that I could carry it without realizing it and pass it on to somebody who could very well get sick and die from this virus. And that's really the concern here for for many, many people. Is like, look, it's not just about you. It's not just about you not being worried about your health. There are plenty of people who have compromised immune systems who are unable to fight off this virus in their bodies, and uh, they may very well die from it. So I think we need to be very mindful of what we're doing in our day-to-day lives and try to mitigate, again, mitigate the spread of this virus as much as possible. Doing this will help medical workers, people working in hospitals, in the medical community to help deal with it because the problem is is infrastructurally at least in the United States as this virus spreads to more and more places there inevitably is a spike of patients people to go to the hospital and they need care and if you have a giant influx of, of people trying to get attention medical attention at a hospital you overwhelm the hospital's ability to take care of their patients and that's what they mean by flattening the curve. You know, you, if you can mitigate it enough, it's not going to stop the virus from spreading. It's, it's going to spread. The shit's going to go around. But if you slow the spread enough, it will take a significant amount of stress off of the medical workers who are trying to deal with this crisis in real time. And I think we can learn about that from what's going on in Italy right now. That's a big deal. What's happening in Italy right now is a big deal. And we can look to how the medical establishment there, the people that are working in the medical field there, are overworked, stressed, they are working in conditions that are just not ideal. It is not a good situation there right now. And Northern Italy is completely under lockdown. So anyway, that's all said, that's all discussed, you know, in numerous places, so I'll just leave it there. This interview with John, though, more specifically is about, as his article title states, What is the coronavirus doing to the global economy? How is this impacting globalization? And John provides a bit of a historical context to this regarding pandemics, regarding globalization, the spread of viruses as a result of human beings coming in closer and closer contact with one another. Uh, One of the first major examples of this, of course, is when colonizers landed in the so-called Americas, spreading viruses and diseases among the indigenous populations, leading to something like 90% of the people in North and South America, indigenous peoples in North and South America, dying as a result directly from exposure to viruses that were brought from Europe. We also have, of course, the Black Plague that happened in Europe before that, uh, which spread around that continent and Asia. Uh, We also have uh, more modern examples, and this is what we really kind of focus on a little more in this interview, with the pandemic, the Spanish flu, which in post-World War I, the Spanish flu spread around the world, killing as many people, I believe is what John states here in this interview, as many people were killed by the Spanish flu as died in World War I. And this was the first wave of globalization, as he states, I'm going to quote, here, really quickly from his article. In the modern era, soldiers returning home from fighting in World War I spread the Spanish flu, killing up to 50 million people. The last pandemic was one of the factors behind the collapse of the first wave of modern globalization. Prior to the outbreak of World War I in 1914, the world had never been more tightly connected with steamships, trains, and the telegraph serving as the connective tissue. Trade as a proportion of GDP stood at 14% on the eve of the war. The devastation of World War I, followed by the flu epidemic, dealt a heavy blow to world trade and economic integration. The global economic depression of the 1920s, the rise of various types of nationalism, and the Second World War ensured that, by 1945, trade as a proportion of GDP had dropped to a mere 5%. So, what I wanted to get at, I mean, this virus, this outbreak, this pandemic is already spelling financial doom for the markets. We've seen the stock market crash consecutively, day after day. We've seen, I guess, the federal government in the United States has tried to uh, bail these financial institutions out uh, with the one, what is it, over a trillion dollars that they've put in there. I mean, this is like 2008 all over again. You know what I mean? The financial markets are struggling the global economic system as we're seeing it right now is being severely undermined by this pandemic with whole sections of nations shutting down as we saw in china uh, as we're seeing in italy as we're likely going to see more and more here in the united states in the coming weeks and months the whole global economic system is very precarious and fragile and this pandemic and its spread and subsequently the responses of governments and peoples around the world is showing how fragile this system really is this is a wake up call this should demonstrate like well this is what we've been told is progress and it's obviously it's it's like a house of cards I mean, pandemics are serious and need to be taken seriously, and even under the best of circumstances, even if we had the best situation possible, it would still be a difficult situation to get through. But because of the nature of how this whole socioeconomic system is built and works, this virus is wrecking havoc in ways that are needless, to be honest. But it's useful to, I think, understand also that this just is a demonstration of what future crises as a result of the climate crisis, ecological collapse, how much of an impact this is going to have on the system. This is a precursor, folks. This is this is serious and this is happening now and we need to think about what's happening in the in the present, but we also need to remember that global climate change is still happening. It's a runaway train at this point. Ecological collapse is happening. And the crises that are emerging in societies and in the global economy, the global economic system at large as a result of climate disruption and collapse, I mean, this is just the beginning. And this pandemic is a wake-up call to what we can expect in the future unless we begin to act accordingly. And none of our governments, none of the economic centers of power in the world are really doing much to deal with that, in the same way that governments have been really um, sluggish and inadequate in their responses to this virus outbreak, and this is something that John and I talk about. It's like each country has dealt with this differently. So how China's dealt with it is different from how South Korea has dealt with it, from how the United States is dealing with it, Italy, all these various places around the world. Each respective nation is dealing with it in their own way. And some have been far more effective than others at mitigating the impacts of this pandemic. So I, I I really appreciate John for enlightening me and for going over this information. I think, as I said at the beginning of this introduction, there's plenty of information and resources out there about the health side of this, about the medical side of this. I'll put resources in the description about that specific thing. And I think with this interview in particular with John, I really wanted to get at the other side of it, the global implications, the economic implications of this pandemic. This is a big deal, folks. <laughs> 2020, you know, here we are and it's its a shit show. And I don't think it's going to get, honestly, too much better. Um, I don't want to be too pessimistic or anything or any, anything like that. I just, you know, fitting it within the larger scale of things. I mean, this is a... This is a precursor. We need to learn from this. This is a time to learn, folks. And it's also a time to act wisely and to think about your fellow human beings and not getting them sick, if possible. Uh, I just have to thank John so much for his insights in this interview. Uh, I'll be putting all the resources you need to access... Uh, John's article, uh, which was again published at Foreign Policy in Focus, that is fpif.org, and there's also his website, Johnfeffer.com. and he also is the author of uh, Frostlands, and uh, which is a sequel to Splinterlands, uh, it's a dystopian novel series that he has put together, he explains that a bit at the end, and it actually fits into this discussion quite well uh, regarding what's happening today. So, anyway, John, thank you very much for coming back on the podcast for the second time. Thank you all for listening to this episode. Here is my interview with John Pfeffer. All right, well, John, thanks for coming back on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, I've, As I said before we started the interview... I've been wanting to address what's happening with the uh, coronavirus, or uh, as it's been called, COVID-19, this pandemic that's making its way around the globe right now. And as I said also before, there's been a lot of coverage regarding the health and medical side of this crisis. There's plenty of information about how to avoid getting the, the virus uh, wash your hands, you know, social distancing, uh, as we're seeing right now, a lot of uh public spaces, public gatherings have been like sporting events, uh music festivals, things like that have been canceled uh, in the United States in particular, but we've seen that in other places around the world as well and so that's been discussed a lot, but I really appreciate your analysis the sort of geopolitical, uh, the, the economic analysis that you've provided regarding this pandemic. And I think that is something that needs to be maybe understood more or discussed in more depth in general. Um, so again, thank you for providing that analysis. Uh, I was reading your article, Will the Coronavirus Kill Globalization? That was published at uh, Foreign Policy and Focus, and it was also picked up at Counterpunch, which is where it kind of came up on my radar. Um, so I, I guess the first thing I would ask is, it's a very, very general question, but in what ways has this pandemic uh, impacted the global economy thus far?
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, the obvious thing, of course, is uh, the impact on... Um, global markets i think that's the what most people have been quite aware of as they worry about their pension funds and uh they're just concerned about the their their livelihood um we've seen uh, the stock market go into a bear market um after 11 years or so of generally rising value um and uh just wiped away, you know, several trillion dollars of, of, uh, value there. Uh, and now that's, you know, something that, uh, is, is not unusual. The market responds to, uh, uncertainty and investors are always looking for, um, reasons to move their money one way or another. And, uh, and this might in fact prove to be, you know, a a A uh, temporary um, phenomenon and there are a number of investors who are saying look you know we'll see a very um we'll see a kind of a v a rather sharp decline in value followed by a rather sharp incline in value once the the worst of the coronavirus passes and that might be true It, it certainly has been the case in the past that um these kinds of uh uncertainties um, that have caused a uh, plunge in, in the stock market have uh, have given way to the kind of ec- uh, uh, excessive exuberance <laughs> that mm-hmm. that accompanies the relief that. Uh, pandemic has passed or, or any other kind of crisis of that nature um, more challenging perhaps are, are the kind of long-term structural impacts that uh, that a pandemic of this nature will have on the economy now obvious obviously that's going to be um uh in, a, in several different fields one is trade in general um and uh, and i don't know how much in detail you want me to get on this first general question but there's already there was already a slowdown in in globalization, e- economic globalization in terms of uh, the amount of uh, foreign direct investment uh, that was taking place um, in terms of the uh, the kind of multiplication of the global assembly line, if you will. Uh, there was already a tendency on the part of manufacturers. To start looking closer to home for the sourcing of their component parts, uh, for and and that was for a number of reasons. I mean, one was uh, in part because of instability generally around the world, even before the pandemic uh, hit us, whether it was war or it was failed states um, or it was uh, anti-austerity riots in countries around the world. Um, a second was uh, that. Um, there are no longer were really any major savings uh, to be had from um, from uh, transportation costs, um, and so for a while the, the costs were, were declining for you know shipping your stuff around the world in containers and so forth, um, and and so there were no longer kind of any additional savings to be found there, and then finally an, another kind of uh, element here was that uh the folks were discovering that there were advantages to sourcing uh components closer to home especially as you were going higher up the value chain um you could have access to uh to folks closer to home that perhaps were better educated and certainly you didn't have uh, language uh, costs involved so all of that contributed to um to uh, a resourcing if you will closer to home and uh and what has what the economist called globalization, um a slowing down of globalization uh, for the last decade or so. And so, this, this pandemic, um, just on that particular issue of, uh, of the global assembly line, might have kind of longer term structural impact in terms of um, reinforcing this trend.
0: Right. Yeah, you write here in your article, the global spread of a new pathogen has exposed the fragility of modern life. As it moves around the world, the coronavirus has compromised the circulatory system of globalization, dramatically reducing the international flow of money, goods, and people. The disease has done so rather economically by infecting fewer than 100,000 people so far. Extrapolation and fear have done most of the work for it and you do compare this to say um other uh pathogens like uh the e- Ebola virus which has something like a 50% mortality rate versus the coronavirus which is somewhere between what 1 to 3 to 4%, I guess they're sort of estimating. Um it, it what I find I guess fascinating is that like you said here it's it's not that it's not a big deal, but it's based just around the, I guess, the way the whole global economy has been structured, something as, something like this has had a huge impact on uh, on international travel, on the trading of goods uh, between various nation states. So, I mean, what to you does this speak to as far as maybe some of the inherent weaknesses or flaws in how globalization has, uh, has has manifested in the past several decades
1: mm. well it, obviously as I said in in the article um, the coronavirus has exposed how how fragile our our modern life is the modern life that's dependent on on globalization A- and it 's also based on on trade offs trade offs which generally speaking we 've been uh, happy to uh, accommodate but when the losses outweigh the gains then suddenly uh, we turn our back on uh, on on this system so i'll give you an example you know in, in europe uh, there's been a in the european union there has been a trade off uh, on this question of the free flow of goods services and people throughout the the european space and there are a lot of advantages to that. Obviously, Europeans are thrilled about the opportunity to go work in other countries, and uh, they're happy that uh, there is some savings uh, connected to um, uh, goods traveling with, without any real barriers from within the European space. Um, but uh, there are some challenges. Uh, there are some uh, downsides to that. One, of course, is that you know organized crime can. Can proliferate within that space, sending stuff around rather easily uh, from the Balkans on up, drugs, guns, etc. Uh, and also, uh, uh, there has been just with uh, the free flow of folks within the European Union, stresses put on economies um, and stresses put on communities that have led to backlash, uh, which we of course saw with Brexit in the UK, which was largely in response to, to the huge number of Eastern Europeans who were coming to the country. It really wasn't a response to the, the migrants coming from war-torn countries or, or North Africa or even former British colonies. It was the real up, uh, dramatic uh, upturn in uh, numbers coming from Poland, Romania, etc., cetera, uh, that created that backlash. But then if you add on top of that the so-called migrant crisis, uh, uh, that suddenly, you know, puts a stress on these uh, these kind of essential components of European integration, which is prefaced on the free flow of, of people and goods and currency. Uh, on top of that, you throw a, a pandemic uh, and suddenly, you know, Whereas you had only a couple of countries throwing up walls before, Hungary, for instance, throwing up a wall between itself and Serbia to keep out immigrants, um, or say walls within Eastern European countries to wall off Roma population, suddenly everyone wants to throw up a wall because they're suddenly scared of anybody coming from outside um, because they might be carrying with them a pathogen. Um, So this suggests that... You know, it doesn't take much to uh, become a tipping point, if you will. Already, there's there's enough dissatisfaction with uh, the downsides or what are perceived to be the downsides of globalization that all you need is a little bit more for uh, a government which hitherto had been, you know, pro-globalization to decide that uh, hmm, maybe maybe we do need that travel ban uh, and maybe even on top of that we should really think more uh, deeply about uh, how connected our economy is globally if something like this comes along and it leads to such a dramatic drop in our economic performance.
0: Mm. So I guess that what you're speaking to is it's a compounding thing. It's like there's all these other uh, factors that that are there and then you throw in a pandemic and it's like the whole thing starts to really come down to some degree, maybe not completely, of course, but it's like there's already tensions between nations and borders and whatnot, and now it's like, oh, now there's a pandemic, so it's even more so. Is that what you're saying? I guess it kind of adds to the to the problem?
1: Yeah, and uh, to give another historical example, you know, we had a kind of first major wave of modern modern globalization at the end of the 19th century going into the early 20th century, um, which was made possible by steamships, the telegraph, um, train travel, which really knit together the world in a way that it hadn't previously been. Of course, there had been the Silk Road and trading routes, of course. But in the modern sense, it really was uh, a question of a, a, an enormous upgrade in technology and in, in uh, reducing or contracting the dis- contracting the distance um, between people internationally. All of that comes to a halt with World War One, which you know is this. You could, aside from all of the kind of you know geopolitical um, uh, disagreements that were involved in World War One, you could have you could see it as simply one enormous backlash against globalization, that modern globalization backlash uh, of nationalist movements throughout Europe at the time and in other parts of the world. Um, groups that were dissatisfied with this contraction of distance. They did not want to be so close to people on the other side of the world. And they, would, they were willing to go to war in order to preserve their sovereignty, to preserve their distinctness as a, as a nation. Um, and World War One, you know, effectively destroyed that first wave of modern globalization. But the crowning touch on that was really the pandemic that uh, took place at the end of the war between approximately 1918 and 1920, the Spanish flu, which killed as many people as World War I did, um, but also really exposed the fragility of, of this global project because uh, it was spread by um, people traveling around, mostly soldiers returning from the war, but not just soldiers. And suddenly people became suspicious of uh, of you know of of open borders of um of open travel so uh, if you will this was this was a similar kind of um uh, uh phenomenon in which you had the, the kind of ground already prepared for uh, a major kind of step backward from globalization and then on top of it a pandemic that basically said you're right folks this is not This is not such a great project and you should think twice about, you know, bringing the the world so close together. Um, You know, it's a a reminder that goes all the way back into history. Pandemics, basically, many of them um, begin because of of agriculture and the first cities when uh, you had – livestock and people living in close proximity to one another and diseases jumping back and forth between them. Uh, That too should have been a reminder, hey, maybe you shouldn't be so close to your pig or your horse. Mm -hmm. That's what the pandemic was telling humanity. And likewise, in 1918, the pandemic's message, as interpreted by many people, was, you know, this global project of smushing people together, of of, uh, reducing the distance between them is not necessarily such a good idea. Mm.
0: I think that there's maybe a fine line, or maybe it's not so fine. Maybe it's something else. But you know, the first response, like, socially, I guess, that I was seeing that everybody here was seeing is, of course, uh, the virus first became known uh, as the Wuhan virus because of where it was at in China. And immediately, we started seeing people freaking out about Chinese people, you know, there was this sort of stoking of xenophobia and racism towards Asians, and th- in the United States in particular, where I'm at, where we are at right now. Uh, so in a way, it's it's it, it's like the pandemic itself is stoking and bringing to the surface a lot of maybe uh, sentiments and ideas that really haven't gone away. And like you mentioned with World War One, it really brought up a lot of those i guess ultra-nationalist feelings that people were starting to feel during that time so it's like the pandemic i think is it's being interpreted in all these different ways but one way that one way that i find really disturbing that it is being interpreted is there's a particular group of people that are creating this virus and we need to keep them out uh yeah. you know I, I think that needs to be spoken spoken to a little bit
1: Absolutely. I mean, it would be lovely if, you know, the, the virus magnified our best um, qualities as, as a, uh, mm-hmm. s- uh, such that, you know, uh, and, and this does happen, obviously, some places where communities come together and, and they really um, uh, provide uh, assistance and resources to the most vulnerable people in the community, in this case, older folks and people with underlying conditions. Um, and, uh, you know, and and like I said, that has happened in some places. Um, but, uh, unfortunately in a, in an atmosphere of fear, uh, and in an atmosphere in which resources are not unlimited, um, the virus tends to, uh, magnify the worst aspects. Uh, and, And some of those aspects are, you know, uh, simply xenophobia. Um, this thing comes from outside. As Donald Trump, the president, said, this is not an American disease. Uh, this was early on before it became, a, <laughs> it became an American disease. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it is a... Ultimately, I think a lot of people want there to be some underlying reason um, why this pandemic is spreading, um, and uh, and for them the reason is other people. <laughs> you know, other people are the problem. Um, and if we simply keep our distance from them, as you know, as you know, an America first foreign policy suggests then we wouldn't have these problems. Um, And so, yeah, unfortunately, it's reinforcing that kind of uh, philosophy.
0: Yeah, that is not good. Uh, And I want to ask about, you know, considering we do live in a global economic system, as fragile and as unequal as it may be, uh, we tend to think that, I, I guess maybe even though we think that there is this global system, each government is responding to this crisis differently. And... If you could talk to a bit of that, like how, say, China's responded versus Iran, versus Italy, versus now the United States, and maybe in some ways that it's been effective or ineffective or maybe speaks to some of the underlying structural issues in how bureaucracies uh, around the world deal with pandemics of this nature. Mm
1: -hmm. So China's response was as if, the, the pathogen was a, a form of political dissent, you know, but <laughs> it had to be contained and eliminated as quickly as possible and as ruthlessly as possible. Um, so in, in some, in the same way that for instance, the Chinese government has kind of identified the pathogen of separatism in uh, Xinjiang province and, and kind of, and started quarantining people up there effectively. Uh, it decided that it would um, kind of swoop in as quickly as possible and and lock down uh, Wuhan. And uh, to a certain extent, that has been effective, at least it's been effective in the short term. We, we can't be entirely certain about the numbers that are coming out of China, but at least according to the numbers, um, it, it really has been remarkably effective in terms of um, of shutting down the contagion there now whether China will then be uh, subject to a, a secondary or tertiary uh, infection once it starts opening the country up or once people start going back to work and in, in, in schools is another question um, but anyway that's China's kind of approach South Korea uh, has approached it uh, from a almost a technical point of view even before the virus reached uh, South Korea, a number of uh, medical companies had already uh, had a test in place uh, or uh, manufactured and available so that, um, whereas here in the United States where we don't really, we didn't really have the, the testing capability, we have managed to test mm, something along the lines of 10,000 people so far, maybe a little bit more. Uh, South Korea was doing 10,000 and more per day. Um, Now, what that meant is that rather than uh, imposing a kind of draconian uh, Chinese-style containment policy in South Korea, uh, what the government did was uh, aggressively test people, identify who was sick, make sure that the people who needed um, uh, hospitalization got it. Those who were sick but didn't need hospitalization uh, were simply quarantined at home. In other words, it was kind of an effective triage um, system that was aided by South Korea's um, very good kind of technical infrastructure, technological infrastructure. So South Korea, I think, has seen you know a, a large number of, of infections, but has handled it uh, quite effectively. Italy, um, <laughs> I mean, Italy is a is is a country that has been riven by regional disparities for its entire history. Uh, so it's no surprise that. The coronavirus aggravated this, uh, this regional division, and the government initially responded in, in, uh, in a regional way by trying to lock down the northern part of the country uh, and, and hoping that the Italians would simply follow government uh, recommendations. Well, Italians love to go around <laughs> government recommendations, <laughs> People in the north, as soon as they heard that their area was going to be locked down, flocked to, to train stations and got in their cars to drive anywhere else uh, in the country to get away from uh, from this uh, pandemic hot zone, uh, which prompted the government finally to realize it would have to do something at a, at a national scale. So uh, not a very unified response from from Italy, the United States, um, you know. Here in the United States, we expect something from the federal government. We're all looking to the CDC. Uh, We're all looking to um, the president. We're looking to Congress to to address this issue in a federal way um, because it's a federal problem. And when the federal government fails to do so, then uh, we're at sea, frankly and uh it's up then to states and and localities to to do as best as they can uh and which they could do if they had the right guidance if they had the right uh resources um but unfortunately we haven't so uh whereas in italy you saw a kind of regional breakdown here you see the, the real problem of the United States, which is that we're not really very united. Um, and particularly when we have a, a president who subscribes to this kind of confederal notion of, of how the United States should be, uh, especially with an administration that is committed to the deconstruction of the administrative state, which is what Steve Bannon said was one of the three pillars of his economic nationalism. Um, then you're going to get the kind of incoherent and frankly, incompetent response that we've had here. So if you will, the the pandemic has been this kind of, uh, it's been this kind of marvelous. And I use that ironically marvelous um, magnifier of cultural difference um, and, and really has exposed some of the, some of the uh, specific, uh, cultural incompetences and competences that we have uh, around the world. Yeah.
0: I just think it's, uh, it's fascinating because I guess it was a uh, prime minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau. He is in self quarantine right now because his wife tested positive for the virus. Um, the I've heard conflicting reports, but I've heard mostly that Jair Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil has contracted the virus as well. His aide. I guess they had visited both of them. uh, Had visited with Trump just several weeks ago, I believe, and had tested positive for that. And now, of course, Bolsonaro was tested positive. Uh, And it's I guess if there's anything about this pandemic that speaks to, (laughs) it doesn't. It it seems to me that the the political elite they seem to travel the most. You know, they're going all over the world um, in order to engage in diplomacy or or whatever. And it's it's fascinating to me that that's actually probably the thing that's going to affect them the most when it comes to this virus, that they are exposing themselves to more and more people. As a result, they are more likely, I think, to contract the virus. And it speaks to how destabilizing I think this pandemic really is when world leaders are just as uh, vulnerable to this virus as as you and I?
1: Yes, perhaps more so, given more that so. They, they tend to be older, and they tend to have underlying conditions of one sort or another, yeah. <laughs> including stupidity. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> but it also exposes another interesting thing, which is, you know, if these guys were really nationalists, you know, if they were true nationalists, uh, Trump, Bolsonaro, um, then they'd stay home, you know, they, they would going around shaking hands with their compadres and, uh, co-religionists, uh, across the world. But in fact, they're not really nationalists. They all belong to a kind of international of, of the right wing, which impels them to, to travel and meet one another. So uh, it's almost as if, uh, the uh the the pandemic the pathogen has exposed this this particular aspect of of these uh these so-called nationalist leaders has has uh, exposed them for what they really are mm,
0: right uh and i want to i want to talk about maybe uh the us healthcare system it's a private healthcare system and it seems to be at least with this pandemic the federal government's had to make special exceptions to, say, testing, right? They say, okay, we will front the costs for testing, even though they still don't have enough tests to actually deal with the magnitude of the problem. Nonetheless, they're like, all right, you don't have to pay for this test anymore, I, I guess. That's what I've heard, at least. Um and this is a this is obviously a big issue in the presidential election right now. It's come down to in the Democratic primaries between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. One of the major uh, components of the Bernie Sanders campaign is that we all should have Medicare for all, that we should have universal basic um, health care, uh, basic access to health care for all Americans, uh, among other things, of course. Uh, do you see in that view, do you think that having a more robust, uh, uh public health care system is more effective in dealing with the pandemic that we 're seeing right now
1: oh absolutely and and you know one of the one of the great criticisms of of a uh, medicare for all or or a public health care system here in the United States is it'll cost too much money and well it will cost there's no question about that no one's saying it's not going to cost a lot of money. The question is you know, whether it's worth spending that mon- amount of money. And when you see the amount of, of money that's lost uh, as a result of a pandemic of this nature, whether we're looking simply at uh, the stock market or whether we're looking at lost uh, hours uh, in, by employees um, or the cancellation of um, uh, Broadway, sports, what, what have you, um, uh, or the the, you know, the... People no longer taking flights, no longer going on cruise ships. It's an extraordinary uh, cost. And it, it reminds people, or it should remind people, that um, you cannot have either a global economy or, frankly, a modern national economy without uh, having basically modern healthcare. And by modern healthcare, I mean it has to be national. Um, um, because you know the a pandemic in particular, because it it uh, reaches out it it identifies the weakest links in in a society. Because you know what is a pathogen interested in? A pathogen is interested in reproduction, uh, and it's going to go to the places where it can reproduce reproduce the most. It's going to avoid places or i.e. bodies which are relatively healthy, and it's going to go to places which are relatively unhealthy. Um, so if you have a health care system which only reinforces the health of the already healthy and basically neglects the health of the uh, already unhealthy, then you're basically saying to pathogens, come on in. You know, This is, is a, a big welcome, uh, welcome banner to, to pathogens and pa- pandemics to come to your country and infect the, the most vulnerable. Um, when it comes to the global economy you basically cannot have a global economy without modern health. Uh, And I I haven't seen an argument like this, maybe uh, in uh, guns, germs, and steel. Jared Diamond does kind of come at this argument uh, in in making the case that um, that uh, you, you could not really have uh, a global economy until modern healthcare was in place. Um, that uh, it simply would, all of the people moving around, all of the trade moving around, uh, was just simply too great an opportunity for infection to spread wildly um, and cause enormous numbers of dead people. Um, unless you had a health system, a modern health system that could handle uh, you know, a high level of potential infection... You could not have a a modern global economy. So uh, these, I think, are inextricably linked. And, you know, this issue, as you said, is going to come up in the presidential debate. And it'll probably, you know, as a result of this pandemic, I hope uh, people have a more informed uh, perspective, because before it was just abstract. And now people really see the costs of uh, of. You know, of not having a, a modern national health care in this country. Mm.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think once it it uh, comes out of the app, ab- it, it's not abstract any longer, and it becomes very real for people. Then people start to really embrace almost uh, a social democratic or socialist values. It's kind of fascinating when it's going well. Everybody's like, "Okay, we'll take care of ourselves." Everybody take care of their own, whatever. But it seems when these types of situations arise, these become these questions come to the forefront a lot more and i if there's anything i could say positive that could come out of this crisis it is that is uh people will acknowledge the flaws in the systems that they are embedded within and they can begin to ask or push for certain reforms or policy changes that are going to make sense you know for the global or the national population at large yeah
1: I hope so. I, I mean the, the other op, the other possibility of course is you know the America first position is strengthened and people say you know we should have closed the border earlier uh not that there's any you know evidence to support this view it's just that you know this is this is the position no doubt that Trump will push come November um and some people will rally behind that um but my hope is that, uh, that <laughs> through the sheer incompetence of this administration, um, he will be hoisted by his own petard, um, and so he he won't be he won't be able to save himself through his rhetoric this time. His actions will have completely undermined him. Okay,
0: and I do want to point to this. Maybe get really specific here because you do criticize Trump for very good reasons, of course. Uh, but, in this specific crisis, I mean, what things have you witnessed that just demonstrate the complete incompetence or or even just outright cynicism that has come from this administration regarding this crisis?
1: Well, you know his speech to the nation, of course, was a was a wonderfully condensed uh, example of incompetence um, in which you know he declares a new policy on um, travel from Europe without specifying that Americans are exempt from this, without specifying that it didn't apply to, or actually he, he did say that it applied to, to goods as well, and then he had to ask other people to walk that back. Um, he uh, did very little to reassure the country of, uh, of you know, the, that we would have the systems in place to deal with this problem. Um he has throughout this, uh, the last couple of months kind of gone from one miss, uh, one bit of misinformation to another about, you know, the nature of the crisis, when the crisis might end, where the crisis comes from, um, what people should do on a day to day basis. Um, in the first couple of years, of course, of the administration, um, He pushed, sometimes unsuccessfully, but sometimes successfully, to uh, reduce uh, the funding for both uh, national and for global response. Um, There was a a very prominent example of of reduction for uh, centers overseas uh, funded by American money uh, that actually the administration wanted to reduce quite dramatically uh, from 40-some to 10 but got so much pushback uh, from Congress that had to abandon that particular um, option. So if the administration had been allowed to do everything it wanted to do, we would be even in a a worse situation than we are right now. Uh, Obviously, you know, people pointed out we don't have the testing kits available, um, which really, as in the South Korean case, could have made a very big difference um, early on in in this. But. you know, again, everyone I think in, in in the United States is looking for quote unquote leadership uh, from a president, and that leadership can be both at a rhetorical level. You know, uh, an FDR giving a speech uh, about the um, the need for Americans to to hang tough in difficult times, or it can be a president who is um, willing to, to kind of fold up uh, roll up their sleeves and and get in there and and do things um and i mean obama was rightly criticized for a number of the actions he took after uh, during the financial crisis after he took office um in particular bailing out the banks but uh he at least addressed the crisis uh, resolutely, again, I disagree with a lot of the actions, but he addressed it resolutely, and I think that reassured a lot of people uh, and a lot of institutions, and ultimately reassured the market, uh, our allies globally. Um, so that's the kind of leadership uh, you know that people are looking for. Okay, well, you might not do the the right thing, but at least uh, you know you do so in in with a solid set of arguments. Um, and uh, we have the confidence that, that you know, we, we have the best people up there providing, you know, the, the most up-to-date information and choosing among uh, the variety of policies that are available to make the best informed decision. And we don't have that. We, we have not had that for three years. We've been able to, to get along uh, more or less uh with this incompetence, because there hasn't been as yet uh, a really acute crisis. We've had chronic crises, you know, whether we're talking about um, you know the Middle East or uh, North Korea or um, uh, the trade with China, we've had chronic problems. We haven't had an acute crisis like this, which really has exposed uh, in in sharp contrast the incompetence of of our leaders.
0: Right. I want to, I guess some of the fears that people are having, and I mean, this was discussed, I feel like it's been discussed maybe at least a year or more now where I've been seeing uh, articles, analysis popping up, talking about uh, a looming global recession. Uh, And if anything, I mean, this crisis could very well, I mean, uh, from what I'm hearing anyway, that it could very well spark that, that this Economic downturn that we've seen as a result of, of responding to this virus, to this pandemic, is that, yeah, economically, uh, economic activity has, has taken a, a big turn for the worst. Uh, so, do you sense that this is something that's going to trigger uh, a global recession?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's, not, it's not at this point not a tough call to make. I mean, <laughs> uh, fortunately, you know, it was back, I guess it was in, uh, in the summer, no, no, the fall of, of uh, I when I wrote the piece, maybe it was the, the fall of 2018 actually. So it was already more than a year ago that I, I wrote a piece called the, there's a new crash coming. Um, and I, I was looking at basically a lot of the indicators, other people were looking at, Um, the fact that, uh, you know, we had just enormous amounts of debt in this country. And it wasn't just federal debt, it wasn't just the Trump administration racking up um, billions and billions of dollars of of debt through tax cuts and military spending. But there was also enormous household debt, uh, which was reaching new highs, $13 trillion in in August of 2018, corporate debt, uh, hitting a new high of $6.3 trillion, um, in 2018, um, student debt. I mean, it was just anybody, um, looking at the United States from the outside, as a kind of clear-eyed investor would say, there's no way I'm going to put money into this enterprise. I mean, it's it's totally over-leveraged. In addition to having an incompetent leader um, who's engaged in the most irrational of exuberance. Um, so, from the point of view of the United States, as kind of the, the leader of, of the global economy, yes, it was clear that we were, we were definitely in trouble. Um, if you add on to that uh The Trump administration basically <laughs> hastening the contradictions, which is what the Marxists used to call, in other words, doing everything he's, he could it seemed to uh, to undermine the global economy through um, erecting trade barriers and slapping tariffs even on our on our allies um, and and generally speaking uh you know uh, Making it extraordinarily difficult for U.S. manufacturers and, and farmers to to make it uh, in in this new environment. Um, you know, the back in 2018, I said, "Look, it's going to come. It's just a question of when it's going to come and what would be the precipitating factors." Um, and you know, it, it could have been a war. It, it could have been, you know, just the uh, a complete all and out all in, uh, all out trade conflict with china um it could be the you know economic collapse of the eu as a result of the the indebtedness of of a number of of key member states um uh it it could have been um you know the the paralysis in throughout africa and latin america and in south asia uh as a result of um anger over government policies and policies of international financial institutions there could have been any number of of uh, precipitating factors as it turns out it's, it's the tiniest tiniest factor of all you know a virus which is the smallest possible thing um but something which is so difficult to defend against um and this has revealed you know the just how what a what a house of cards we had Uh, economically speaking um and you know i I said earlier that yeah there are analysts who say we're going to see a v in which we see a a deep dip but then followed by you know an immediate uh, rush back into the market uh, as people pick up bargains and 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 head back towards a bull market well yeah that's always possible but You know, it's also possible to just see W, W going off into the distance, up, down, up, down, oscillations, which uh, create and destroy value and uh, imperil the livelihoods of of millions, um, possibly billions of people around the world. Um, You know, I'm not uh, optimistic as a result of, you know, the elections of the last few years and and what those elections produced in, um, in country after country around the world. Uh, we have effectively a group of illiberal nationalists in charge all over the world over at least half. They're in charge of at least half of, of the population, the world's population, China, India, Russia, Turkey, Brazil, the United States, Poland, Hungary. Um, egypt uh, thailand um so given the their perspectives it's hard to imagine um a uh, a kind of new more progressive internationalism emerging that would create the kind of solidarity necessary to uh, to put the global economy on a firmer footing uh, instead it seems as if we'll have the opposite we'll have uh, a combination of nationalists who throw up trade barriers plus um, uh, folks who are kind of uh, committed to austerity economics of one sort or another um, vying with each other for control over the global economy And, and that to me is a recipe for recession. Mm. Okay,
0: yeah, was that you? Basically answered my next question, which is how you anticipate governments uh, and economies to react uh, to this in the future. Uh, I, I sense that that's the case as well, and I, I guess maybe I—I I don't know if you have any handle on this answer uh, to this question, but or any grasp on it. But I mean, 2020 started off already pretty intensely i mean we saw several things just come up pretty quickly and then this virus manifested as well um i mean i guess it speaks to the time we're in but you know how do you sense the next several months are going to play out how do you think that based on the decisions that are being made say within the united states or in other nation states around the world that they can actually within a decent time frame actually quell the impacts of this virus, of this pandemic?
1: Well, I I mean, first of all, you know, in my article, and and you quoted the numbers in the article of uh, mortality rate of 1% to 4%, um, and it is very likely to turn out to be much lower than that, um, in part because we didn't have the testing available to find out exactly how many people were uh, infected but either were asymptomatic or, or they had such mild symptoms that they were not reporting them, would, would lower the the mortality rate to, well, some say as low as 0.2%. Now, 0.2 is still, you know, more than 0.1, which is your kind of uh, mortality of a bad flu. Um, but, uh, you know, the, it suggests that even if the mitigation uh, efforts are not fully successful. we won't have uh, you know a, a enormous mortality um, throughout the world. We'll have you know enough people dying I mean no one wants that to happen, but it will not be uh, you know at at the level of the fifty million who died uh, as a result of the the Spanish flu for example. Um, so I do think that that uh, the mitigation effects um, are going to have an effect uh, or the mitigation controls the, the policies will have an effect um uh and i'm hoping that uh that out of this you know i i did mention my pessimism about the leadership in in various countries but I, in the same way that you know, we may see a, a turnabout in the November election, in part as a result of dissatisfaction with the current administration's handling of this crisis, uh, we may see uh, similar turnabouts in other countries um, in in this sense, in the sense that people will s- recognize that, uh, that closing borders really didn't make uh, much difference. That what really made a difference was uh, kind of consolidated national approaches, um, coordinated well at a regional and local level. Uh, But that required, you know, uh, a robust national health system. But that we could have done even better if we had had a robust global uh, health system in place. And of course, as there was a New York Times piece just uh, yesterday or the day before, that there is such, you know, a system in place it has been in place for a decade. It's just not been funded and it's not been supported by uh, the world's government. Um, but it was put in place after SARS, and uh, one can hope that this is an even louder wake-up call. That governments will say, "Okay, you know, we screwed up last time. We did not, uh, you know, really follow through on our." Um, uh, Follow through on our initiative last uh, last time round. This time we really have to do so. In order to do so, we we that that involves not just kind of cooperation at a global health care level. I think it requires greater global cooperation writ large. Um, so, best case scenario, uh, we don't in the next couple of months see the kind of you know large scale mortality uh, associated with a, a, a really devastating pandemic, uh, that will see a political backlash against uh, the governments that have been uh, both incompetent and uh, narrowly nationalistic in their response to this problem, uh, and a recommitment to global solutions for what are obviously global problems, which will then have a follow-on effect beyond healthcare to include the environment, uh, the global economy more generally, um, in other words, a, a kind of uh, <laughs> we can hope that this this little this little virus, this tiny little virus, will um, will will really uh, serve to uh, to to uh, pull the scales from the eyes of, of the world's population to finally recognize, even though the, the evidence was, was there for everyone to see, in terms of melting ice caps, in terms of global inequality. Uh, that we need greater global cooperation, not less global co- cooperation, to handle the global problems that affect us all. Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, That uh, I think that's a great way of pointing to the ways in which we can begin to approach what this crisis means. You know, if there's any meaning that we can get out of it, I think that it's exactly what you said. Absolutely. And, um, John, I, I do want to ask... Since we spoke last, you have published I believe it I believe the first time we spoke, you had published your first novel in a series, uh, Splinterlands," and now you are moving on to the second. You have the uh, next novel in that series, Frostlands. Uh, if you could speak a bit to to that series and what you're getting at with that?
1: Sure. So Splinterlands uh, published it in 2016, so that was you know really just as as Trump was elected right after Brexit. <laughs> And the, the novel looked at the year 2050 uh, and what went wrong, um, a, a splintered, fragmented world. Uh, and a look backwards at, at all of the, um, the developments uh, that contributed to that fragmentation, seen through the eyes of, of a particular family that had fragmented a, uh, alongside the fragmentation of the world. Um, the second volume, Frostlands, came out two years later, so that was in 2018, and that kind of coincided with the midterm elections, if you will. Um, all equally pessimistic in the sense that it was looking at um, the impact of climate change, again looking backwards from 2050, what went wrong, um, and and uh, narrated by the uh, the ex-wife of the character who narrates the, the first novel. Um, but there was still a little bit of hope there, um, I hope, that was, that corresponded with the uh, bit of hope that came with the 2018 midterm elections. And then this final volume, which is called Songlands, is narrated by the daughter of um, of the two characters in the previous novel. And here, I'm hoping, you know, it'll come out after the 2020 elections, and fingers crossed we'll have reasons to cheer. Uh, this one is is somewhat more optimistic uh, of course, it's continues to be uh, set in a dystopian future, so that kind of <laughs> limits the amount of uh, merriment that can, can take place in this novel but uh, but anyway it it looks at uh, an attempt by the daughter to kind of effectively bring the world together um to from the from the bottom up to uh, to solve the problems that uh, that are still. Uh, tearing the, the globe apart Okay,
0: well beautiful, thank you for for discussing that and uh, I just want to say I really thank you John for going over everything that you've gone over in this interview uh, I believe we covered everything that at least I wanted to to get at uh, with this interview and I just want to turn people on to your work, I know you write regularly for uh, Foreign Policy in Focus, and that's F.P. IF.org. you also have your website johnfeffer.com. uh and I'll, of course I'll, I'll be linking people to your article uh, will the coronavirus kill globalization and uh and of course I'll, I'll be linking to your books as well is there any other resources or any other places you'd like to direct people towards uh
1: no i mean just two other sites would be the institute for policy studies where i um i work Ips, IPS-dc.org. Uh, and we, we do a lot of work on kind of economic inequality issues, um, a lot of domestic issues, as well as some, some uh, international questions around the Middle East uh, and uh, trade issues. And then um, I publish a lot at Tom Dispatch, uh, and that's also a great site. And I have a new piece there looking at. Um, the current election cycle and and donald trump's strategies with respect to uh, his opponents okay
0: yeah i'll be uh, sure to direct people towards all those resources uh john thank you again for coming on the podcast i appreciate it very much
1: thank you it was a great pleasure to talk to you
2: hey there thanks for listening If you'd like to learn more about this podcast, visit lastborninthewilderness.com, links in the description below. If you'd like to draw Patrick a line, there are two ways to do that. For those in the United States, you can call the phone number 208-918-2837 and leave a voicemail of up to three minutes in length. Second, you can drop an audio file by following the instructions through the link in the description of this episode. If you'd like to support this project monetarily, here are a few options you can send a one-time donation to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast and you can treat that a bit like a tip jar. And if you'd really like to sustain this work, consider supporting the project through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness and donate to the production of this podcast for $1 or more a month. And by doing that, You'll gain early access to these interviews and discussions before the official public release, and also gain access to some exclusive content there as well. As a great psychedelic bard Terence McKenna said, Take it easy dude, but take it.